1: Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. All right, in today's episode, I'm going to talk with Ralph Toulis, a licensed professional engineer. We're going to talk about construction engineering, doing engineering on construction sites, and really beyond that, which is something I think would apply to all civil engineers, is we really talk about the contractor-engineer relationship, which I know is something that can be a very big component of your career as a civil engineer. And Ralph has spent many years on construction sites, and he talks about the intricacies of that relationship, how it starts out, maybe when you're younger and you lack confidence, then how you can really take control of that relationship. Not commandeering the relationship, but doing it in a positive way, which I'm pretty excited about. This episode is another function of networking. I always try to talk about networking. I was on LinkedIn. Ralph and I got involved in one of the discussions on LinkedIn and next thing you know I started looking at his expertise and we invited him to come on the show. Before we get into our civil engineering conversation of the week with Ralph I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsors for today's episode. (laughs) First of all, I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, is giving away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to our listeners. For more information on how to qualify, make sure to listen to my announcement later on in this episode. I am also excited to tell you about our newest sponsor, SkySiv Engineering, a company who offers structural analysis software on the cloud. With easy, affordable subscription pricing, they're making structural analysis software available to everyone who needs it. I will tell you more about how they can help you in a few moments. All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation so that you get to know a little bit about him before we dive into our conversation. Ralph Toulis is a construction engineering professional who helps contractors manage the challenge of how to construct. He completed his studies in civil engineering at night while working full-time. He currently works at Structures Consulting, where their specialty is concrete structures, temporary structures, ensuring applications, but they will tackle any unique structure. Before we dive into our main segment, I want to let you know that this week's civil engineering conversation is brought to you by Sky SkySiv is a new and powerful structural analysis software on the cloud that is changing the way engineers work. Their software is securely based on the cloud and runs through your web browser, so there's nothing to download, install, or maintain. SkySiv offers subscription-based pricing, so you can even subscribe month-to-month as you need it. SkySiv Structural 3D comes with a full section builder, easy reporting, multiple solve types, plate analyses, and integrated design modules such as AISC-360. For a limited time, SkyCiv is offering all of our listeners a free 14-day trial. Sign up for this exclusive offer by visiting www.skyciv.com forward slash coach and try SkyCiv today. All right, now it's time to jump in today's civil engineering conversation.
0: Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: All right, now it's time for our Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week, and I want to welcome Ralph Toulis to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Welcome, Ralph. Good afternoon. How are you? Great. So Ralph and I met kind of over LinkedIn through some discussions, and Ralph has had a career in uh, construction engineering. And what we want to talk a little bit about today is how things actually get built. It's something that I know in talking with a lot of engineers and, and being an engineer myself as crazy as it sounds, you're not always familiar with the way things get built, even after you design them. So it's something we want to talk a little bit about. Ralph, welcome to the show. Maybe you could just give our listeners a little bit of a, a background on yourself as far as your experience here.
2: Well, I started fresh out of high school as a drafter. And after a few years of doing detailing for open-web steel joists, I migrated into Concrete Formwork. And I happened to encounter a uh, district manager, um, years later, who basically gave me the boot in the butt to uh, get me to go to college and get an engineering degree. which I started to pursue. Needless to say, it took 13 years to get there for a bachelor's because I was working full time uh, with a lot of overtime in there. But all the while, I am designing temporary structures for concrete work. Every piece of formwork on a major commercial project really has uh, some kind of design behind it. And of course, this is not something that's taught anywhere. It's definitely on-the-job training. And I had a couple of good mentors along the way. As I got more involved in concrete construction, you start to get a better feel for how the building behaves while it's under construction. And this is, of course, something that uh, many structural engineers kind of look past because they typically look at a completed building in their analysis. And uh, the reality is you. building in its entirety doesn't just appear. You have to build it floor by floor by floor. And that can sometimes wind up with situations that are contrary to the design of the building. A principal example, the high-rise that I was involved in, Connecticut, won't get any more details than that, but had some transfer walls above the parking levels where they didn't want columns in the parking levels, but they needed them for the office levels above. No transfer walls are nothing extraordinary they're just big beams but no one ever told the contractor that the lowest level supporting the first transfer wall was literally hung from that wall and we didn't find out until after the formwork was ensuring was in for that level and the concrete was placed and then we realized you can't remove that formwork until we're up a couple more floors it wasn't designed for that kind of load interesting experience
1: Yeah, I'm sure it was. And Ralph is obviously speaking on structures and buildings and these large scale projects. But I think this applies really in all disciplines of civil. And I'll give you a simple example from when I was working as a civil engineer on a commercial development with some stormwater systems. I would see on the plans there would be a stormwater basin, and the engineer, because it was easy to do in like AutoCAD would draw like five pipes going into this box. But I mean, I knew because I had worked as a surveyor that it wasn't possible to put all these pipes into these boxes with the different angles and the depth of the box. Sure. But those are the types of things that I think a lot of engineers don't think about. And it's not necessarily their fault completely because they don't have the, like you said, a lot of this stuff is on the job. And if you don't get that on-the-job training, then it can really hamper your ability as a designer and as an engineer overall. So obviously, if you're a younger engineer or even a student, you can make every effort to get some type of in-the-field internship or a job where you start in the field. But Ralph, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what if there's an engineer, a civil engineer, structural engineer that's been working now for some time and they never had that exposure? What can they do to try to get a little bit more of a handle on the construction side of things?
2: Well, I'll do what the field guys hate the most spend some time on the job. I remember some of my first excursions into the field. I mean, the average crew there does not want to see the architect or the engineer looking over their shoulder. It's very, very difficult to get the respect of the guy who's actually swinging the hammer to get him to open up to you and have an honest conversation about how things work. And that was one of my first challenges. And over the course of several years, in working with the guys in the field, I was able to get honest feedback on methods on how things were done. It's spend time on the job, observe, ask questions, see if you can get honest answers. Because a field guy does never want to hear that they're doing it wrong. They think their way is the only way. I don't know. Sometimes it's a case of well, he sits in an office all day, was he know? There is that kind of prejudice out there at times. But You've got to get dirty is the best way to put it. I had a steel connection issue on a project early on in my career. And the easiest way to figure out how to make it work was I made a wood model. You could draw it all day on paper, but you're never going to know whether or not it's physically possible to put it together until you attempt to put it together. It may look good on paper, but you're going to find the glitches that you won't see on paper if you see it for real.
1: Right, you got to look at it in multiple dimensions.
2: And even with today's uh, tools, and I'm thinking building information modeling, rivet, any of these products that allow you to, to detail a structure in 3D, it still doesn't help you figure out how it has to go together. It shows you what it's going to look like, and you may get a clue as to how it can go together, but is that the best way to actually put it together? And that's what I have fun with.
1: Even if you have some experience and you haven't necessarily had the chance to go in the field, take Ralph's advice and try to get in the field. I mean, I know it's not that easy, but go to a site. Say you want to be assigned to a project for three to six months so you can view construction. It's going to really dramatically help you to become a better overall civil engineer. Whatever discipline you're in, it doesn't matter, in my opinion. Ralph, let's go back for a minute because you touched on something that I think is one of the most challenging things for uh, civil engineers, field engineers, which is this engineer-contractor-constructor relationship. Because like you said, there's definitely prejudice there a lot of the time. A lot of times when a younger engineer is starting out, if they're sent out there, they don't have a lot of confidence to begin with. Then you've got these contractors that have been building things for years. And I'm not saying every contractor is going to try to take advantage of someone, but I'm just saying that this is the relationship, I think, that causes a lot of grief for engineers. And it sounds like, Ralph, from your experience, is the best way to handle these types of relationships is you just have to get into them and talk to people and it takes time. you got to get comfortable.
2: Well, getting comfortable is a two-way street. The advantage that I had was that the company I worked for actually built the formwork and the showing. So I was working with people who were getting their paycheck from the same company. It was a little easier for me to get them to open up to me, but even with other trades. I mean, we were dealing with laborers and carpenters, so ironworkers were on someone else's payroll. They worked for a different company. But even there, if you've gotten the respect of someone on site, it's so much easier then to get introduced to someone else, and they're going to be a little bit more open with you. They just have to realize that you're not there so much to check up on them as you are to learn from them. I think that was uh, a very big part of being able to
1: pick up on a lot. I agree with that statement. And my wife is a civil engineer and she's done a lot of work in the field with a previous job in New York City, worked with a lot of contractors. And I think that Ralph has a great point here is it's about if you go in there with the attitude and approach that you're looking for things to get them in trouble on or You're looking for things. Because I know a lot of civil engineers that do that. They say, you know, I got to go to the site and see how I can save my client money and do this and that, which I understand that you do need to be vigilant and make sure that the job is getting constructed as designed, of course, And that there's not any corners being cut. But if you take an approach where you're on the same team, which because everyone we're all on the same team building a project, and as opposed to I'm out to get you, it creates a big shift in the way people Communicate with you. I don't think it's a lot of younger engineers' fault. I think it gets imprinted into our minds at a young age that the contractor is the enemy and you need to like go after them. But I think what Ralph says is opening up to people. We're on the same team. I'm here to make sure it gets done right, but I'm open to suggestions, questions, et cetera. I think that can be helpful.
2: Well, particularly when you have a gnarly situation, very difficult to build. It's always good to talk to the field guys and say, all right, this is what we had to do to make it work. How would you have put it together differently? You can get a lot of good feedback on methodologies by asking questions, not in the context of anyone trying to pin something on someone else, but more what's easier. If you can design around construction method it is simpler for the guy in the field, your building is going to go so much smoother. If you try and force a connection or force a, a methodology and push it down to the field, you'll encounter a lot of resistance and as a consequence it will be more costly. The smoothest most harmonious job site is when everyone gets along And uh, you know I was asked along several years ago from a field superintendent what makes the best job site? what makes the most productive and the most cost-efficient job site. And the bottom line is it's really when everyone gets along and anticipates each other's needs, even though they may be on different teams, if you will, on the job, working for different contractors, different trades, if everyone can anticipate the needs of the other, not that it's going to cost you anything, but it makes a big difference in how smooth things go. And if everybody's fighting each other, you have the best best in the world and you'll still lose money.
1: It's about the communication and the relationships between the parties, definitely. So important. Ralph, I'm going to throw a couple terms out at you. Maybe you could just talk about a little bit for the listeners, just from your experience. What does delegated design responsibility mean?
2: Delegated design responsibility is when the engineer of record encounters a specialty product or a niche trade, if you will, really does not have the background to do a thorough design on it. So. He passes the responsibility for the design of that particular element or elements on to the provider's supplier's engineer. And that engineer then has to do the real design of those elements. Typically, this occurs curtain wall, post-tension concrete, some specialty roofing structures, particularly back when uh, we were first going into open-web steel joists and truss girders, which are basically just the heavy-duty open-web joist designed to carry other open-web joists. And the delegated portion of it tended to be the lateral load analysis, because it realistically was beyond the capability of the average structural engineer at the time. You see it with skylights. A lot of times, they'll pass that along. One of my specialty niches was getting into shoring and reshoring for multi-story construction because no one wants to do it. No one wants the responsibility. And I kind of find it amusing because the concepts behind it are actually pretty simple. But it takes a bit of experience having built a number of buildings to know
1: where the pitfalls are and doing the analysis that goes with. I just want to say here real quick, kind of a broad disclaimer, but Ralph and I are not lawyers. If you need to get any kind of legal advice around the terms we're talking about, you should definitely consult your firm's attorney and do that because I don't want this to be construed as legal advice. But what I do want to say based on some of my nonprofit work with the National Society of Professional Engineers, I do know that with this delegated design responsibility is something that you should be aware of as the design engineer. You should be aware of the rules and your responsibilities depending on your geographic location, your local guidelines, regulations, because I know some engineers that they, when they put something like this on their plans, whether it's like C manufacture design or something like that, they think that they're not responsible. And in some cases you very well could be if you're still signing a set of plans or you're an engineer on the project. And every case is different in engineering. There's no blanket answer. One of the reasons I wanted Ralph to touch on this is because I think it's something that is misunderstood by a lot of engineers. They don't understand what the words delegated design responsibility means. And they're just not sure if they're responsible or not. And my take on it always is that if I'm the design engineer of record, I'm going to be comfortable with everything on these plans.
2: The key is in the last word, record to me, at least. It's fine if you want to pass the design of certain elements down to a delegated engineer. That's fine. But you still have an obligation to make sure that what they do integrates with the entire structure that you're responsible for.
1: Exactly. Like my boss always used to tell me, we're all getting sued if something happens.
2: It's the shotgun approach to lawsuits. That's predominant. And of course, in this society that we live in today, it can be very difficult to keep your professional liability underwriter happy in what you do. Some of the things that I do are borderline means and methods. And professional liability underwriters don't like to cover engineers who do means and methods stuff.
1: That's what I was going to ask you next. Talk about means and methods. What does that mean?
2: Means and methods is how you put together a building. What equipment do you use? What materials do you use? How do you build it? You have to put a wall, foundation wall in at 12 feet below grade. You're going to dig a hole. How do you keep the earth from sliding into that hole? Right there is the delegated design responsibility for the earth retention system. Very big issue in New York City now. The building department requires those plans be submitted with the initial drawings for building, part of the means and methods. How you support formwork is really means and methods. It's still something that needs to be designed.
1: This stuff is specified in the contract documents, or supposed to be?
2: would be nice if it were clearly delineated in uh, contract documents, yes. It's not always perfectly clear. There's general conditions that sometimes can get uh, stretched depending upon the construction manager or general contractor that you're working with. It can be interesting and a bit of a nightmare because I'm more of a contractor's engineer than I am an engineer of record. That's pretty much where I've worked. Now that I'm off on my own, it's a little bit different. And I've been uh, on my own now since 2009,
1: so it makes for an interesting change as Ralph said before, you know there's differences because when you work for the company that's actually constructing, it doesn't necessarily mean that as an engineer, you're, anything's going to change ethically or your responsibility, but it means your relationship. It may be a little bit easier to open up with the actual constructors because you're really on the same team if you're on the same company. But like what I was referencing before is if you're an engineer of record who's on site doing construction management, inspections, or something like that, You're not working for the same company. I mean, you're essentially serving the same end result, the same client, you're on the same team. And that mindset and that approach is important. There's two different sides of it. And there's things that go into it, like the delegated design responsibility, like the means and methods and other things that I wanted to just have this conversation with Ralph, kind of to let you know that it's important. And getting this field work, regardless of who you're working for, just getting field work, period, is what I think is invaluable to your career as an engineer, because It gives you so much more perspective and understanding of the depth of the projects, the way they're built, the way they're put together. I mean, like the saying, picture's worth a thousand words. It's even more than that when it comes to engineering.
2: Well, pictures are great, but like I said, getting dirty is even better. And I use that term loosely, but what I mean is getting in there. One of the first projects I went out on, I got in trouble with the union because I picked up a hammer, you know, union job. You can't do anything. You can only watch. We were on a, a crash program to correct a form that had gone out of tolerance on a high-rise building. We were doing it on the weekend simply to save time and the schedule. If you're in a strong union city like Boston is, as a non-union person, you don't touch a tool. You can direct, you can suggest, but it's still up to whoever's running that crew to issue instructions. And that makes life interesting. Because I was always eager to, like I said, get my hands dirty. Sometimes you have to be a bit more of a diplomat than you might expect.
1: And for those of you that are executives that are listening, because I know we have a lot of experienced listeners, I think part of what this conversation brings to light for me is that a lot of young engineers that get thrown into the field, they're not aware of a lot of these things. I understand there's on-the-job training, but also I think the company should do their best to educate these engineers about responsibilities and what they can expect in the field before completely throwing them to the wolves. Ralph, do engineers ever really retire?
2: I don't think so. It's not looking like that for me right now. I'm uh, 67 in a few months, and I have uh, enough work in the area right now to carry me to probably 70 or 75
1: seems to be a recurring theme whenever I talk to engineers that say, I'm retired, but, you know, I'm doing my own thing. I got a lot of work. I'm keeping busy. So I don't think engineers ever really retire.
2: It's just the hope that your clients have a bit more patience with you because you are in that region between normal retirement and death. So your attitude about getting the job done instantly is a little bit different than it was when you had to answer to someone other than your client.
1: And I know everyone out there listening knows a couple of those engineers that are either a supervisor, or an older supervisor that says, eh, I'm retired, but I'm still working. But that's a whole nother uh, story. Yes, it is. All right. What I'm going to do now is just to end us off here, I'm going to ask Ralph just a few more questions more related to professional development.
0: Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ralph Toolis on that all-important engineering contractor relationship. Now what we'd like to do is pepper Ralph a little bit more on his own personal and professional development in our CE hot seat. But before I do that, I would like to recognize our sponsor, PPI. If you're preparing for the civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindeberg is the book to use. Michael Lindenberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader in FE PE exam prep. PPI has new prep courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breath exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. When you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free so you can start studying while you wait for the courses to begin. Through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter the raffle, visit www.ppitopass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, pass forward slash civil prep. From there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. On the checkout page, enter the promo code PREP and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you win the $100 gift card. I use PPI for my PE exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. All right, Ralph, you ready for a few final questions here? Absolutely. All right, first question. Are there any specific uh, rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific uh, morning ritual or lunchtime ritual, things that you do consistently on a daily basis that contribute to being successful as a professional?
2: Interesting question. Uh, The answer to that probably is it depends on what's on the day's agenda. I don't have a ritual other than to get myself fully caffeinated in the morning. That's a good one. I'm licensed in, in multiple states, and of course I have. Continuing education requirements that I have to maintain over the course of uh, the license period. And uh, that's probably my biggest challenge, is taking care of that.
1: All right, let me ask you this question Is there one book that you recommend to engineers regularly, or just one book that you found to be extremely helpful in your professional or personal development?
2: This may sound silly. There's two books out that I found very insightful, and they have a debatable engineering basis. They're both by Henry Petrowski not sure if you've ever seen them.
1: Sure. I, well, I've heard of him for sure, his books.
2: One is To Engineer as Human, and the other is The Evolution of Useful Things. Great insight into the mind of an engineer. As far as specific books in engineering, I'm at a loss. So far removed from the basics that it's difficult to recommend something. It depends on the field that you're in. As I explain to a lot of clients, engineers and doctors are very similar. We all have a particular niche that we're good at, that we're comfortable working with. And while we may have touch of knowledge about the entire profession, it's that niche that we focus in on and we literally devote ourselves to. For me, it's concrete construction or temporary structures, building modification. Those are the things that I really get a lot of enjoyment out of solving problems. And there's a number of books associated with that that are essential. The basic stuff that you learned to get your EIT covers a broad range of topics, and that's a good starting point. Get that so that it's second nature, and then you start to focus in on the things that
1: will be a major part of your career. Yeah, absolutely. And I think different disciplines, you'll have different books, but the Petrovsky books that you mentioned, actually, I I know are very popular. They're on my bookshelf and actually 60 episodes in here. No one's actually mentioned them on that question. So that was, I'm glad you brought those up.
0: They're just very insightful.
1: I agree. They are insightful. They're interesting. They make you think about stuff, which I think we should think about as engineers.
2: I know I drive my wife crazy when we go to a new, inside of a new building or cross a bridge because I'm always looking to see how it was put together. I'm Mm -hmm. the guy walking around looking up at everything.
1: I tell my kids I'm pointing stuff out as we drive over something under construction, and my kids are like, Dad, what are we looking at here? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, never mind. Go back to doing whatever you were doing. You won't get it. All right, listen, I got one final question here, Ralph, which we call the critical civil engineering career elevator advice question, which is basically if you got into an elevator with a young civil engineer and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her and had to give advice in that short period of time, what would it be?
2: Get out on the job get your hands dirty. Don't do it all from the book. Understand how things go together.
1: And that's uh, perfect for what we talked about today. And honestly, from my experience as a civil engineer, probably some of the best advice you could get, because like I said before, you could read every book in the industry. And if you don't see it, you're not going to understand it. And you're going to get a call one day saying, come out to the site, there's a problem. And trust me, if you had field experience under your belt, it's going to be a lot easier to deal with those problems. Ralph, appreciate you taking time here to talk with our listeners a little bit about your past. Definitely been very uh, interesting. And I know that these are topics that are really important to civil engineers, and we don't always get a lot of information on them. So I do thank you for that.
2: The hardest thing, I think, is to find a mentor.
1: Yeah, that can be tough, finding a mentor, especially in today's world. I know people are busy. It's hard to get in touch with people. And really with mentoring, from my experience, is that if you don't do something consistently with a mentor, it's hard because... It's like you could talk to someone once, and then you don't get to talk to them for six months, and it's hard. So there are programs out there that have associations and programs that have mentoring programs. Do your best to get one because, as Ralph said, it's important. It's hard, but it's important, and it can really help you to advance.
2: It gets you beyond the theory. It gets you closer to practical application of the principles that you learn in your college-level courses or even in seminars. To hear things in very technical languages is is okay, but sometimes it needs to be in ordinary language. Anyway, I hope this helps. I do love to talk about the things that I get into, some of the projects that I've done, some of the challenges I've faced. It takes a unique mind to be an engineer, I think.
1: That's for sure. Listen, everyone out there, please remember you could find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. You'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. You can leave a question in the comments section or visit the Ask Us tab on the website. We monitor all the comments and we'll respond if you leave us one. So until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors.